Hello and welcome to our BMJ Clinical Podcast. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. I help look after BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. This podcast is about viral hemorrhagic fevers in children. The purpose is to help you recognise, report and refer affected patients. The best known of the viral hemorrhagic fevers is Ebola and unfortunately it can affect children particularly badly. In the most recent outbreak of Ebola in West Africa, mortality rates were especially high in children under the age of 5, as high as 80%, and mortality in infants close to 90%. So the topic for this podcast could not be more serious and sobering. And to give us guidance, I'm glad to introduce Dr. Natalie McDermott. Natalie is a Welcome Clinical Research Training Fellow in Paediatric Infectious Diseases and Imperial College London. So, Natalie, let's start off. Could you tell us what exactly are the viral hemorrhagic fevers? Uh, the viral hemorrhagic fevers are a group of diseases um, caused by a variety of different viruses, um, but that can cause, in a proportion of patients, hemorrhagic symptoms. Uh, now, there's multiple different viruses and, and multiple different viral hemorrhagic fevers, uh, but today I, I believe we're focusing on the ones that we predominantly might see in in children, which is, uh, as you've already mentioned, Kieran, Ebola virus, but also Lassa fever uh, and Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever. Ebola virus is caused by a filovirus, which is transmitted, we think, into the human chain of transmission via bats. They seem to be the natural reservoir of the virus. In terms of Lassa fever, the natural reservoir are rodents, uh, and it's transmitted to humans through rodent excreta. And in Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, the main reservoir are ticks, particularly the hyaloma tick, and it's through tick bites that it's transmitted into the human chain of transmission, uh, from which we can then go on to see human-to-human transmission of all of these viruses. Okay, thank you. That's, that's very helpful. And how would you recognise an affected child? So the viral hemorrhagic fevers generally present with very non-specific symptoms, particularly at the beginning of the presentation. And the data we have uh, largely is from Ebola virus. So I'm going to largely focus on that as not that many cases have been described of paediatric or child cases of other viral hemorrhagic fevers. In Ebola virus disease, uh, children might initially present with fever and generally weakness and maybe complaining of headache and muscle aches and pains. A few days later, they may develop diarrhea and vomiting. And then we also go on to see other more specific features, uh, such as conjunctival injection and inflammation of the eye, sometimes hiccups, uh, abdominal pain. In a certain proportion of cases, the literature reports anywhere from about 10 to 30 percent, they may have hemorrhagic symptoms as well. Now, in very small children, we may not see uh, such specific symptoms. During the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, we saw cases of uh, infants who were later diagnosed as having Ebola virus disease who had very few symptoms uh, and went from being a relatively well child to moribund in the space of 12 to 24 hours uh, and had, had not really had any kind of specific symptom. But we do know that fever uh, is usually present in about 90% of patients with Ebola virus disease. And if you suspected a child of having uh, Ebola, I wonder what tests would you request? 
if the test is available in the location you're in, the, a PCR test for Ebola virus uh, would be very important. Now, you need to bear in mind that such a test might be negative in the very early stages of the disease because the viral load may still be quite low and therefore the PCR may not identify it. We had that problem during the Ebola virus epidemic in West Africa initially, but the PCR tests now are a little bit more sensitive and so that's less likely. But as a rule of thumb, if the first test is negative but you're highly suspicious, a repeat PCR should be sent at 72 hours other tests you may wish to consider doing would be basic blood parameters, such as a full blood count, a renal panel, a liver panel, and a coagulation screen. Because we know that certainly adult patients, but also pediatric patients with Ebola virus may have low platelet counts. They often have a low white cell count as opposed to a high white cell count, although either is possible. And they may also have a renal impairment and a, a transaminitis, so elevated liver enzymes. And many of them may show subtle changes in their coagulation parameters, even if they aren't showing signs of overt hemorrhage at that time. And if you do diagnose uh, Ebola in a child, I wonder what isolation measures should you take? With any viral hemorrhagic fever, uh, in a case that's highly suspicious, full isolation measures should be taken so the patient should be isolated from all other patients and all caregivers and relatives. Uh, and all caregivers should be wearing full personal protective equipment to care for that patient, as we know that there are many cases of nosocomial transmission uh, of particularly Ebola virus, but that is also a possibility with Lassa fever and Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, and also human-to-human -human transmission to close contacts and relatives is also very likely uh, in the context of Ebola virus and other viral hemorrhagic fevers. So it's important that the patient is fully isolated and the healthcare workers caring for them have full personal protective equipment. Uh, and I'm guessing that must be really difficult in, in a child. Yes, it is very difficult, um, particularly a young child who, who doesn't understand and where explaining to them isn't, isn't really possible. So uh, children under five particularly struggle with this. It's also very frightening for a child to see someone approaching them in, in a full suit where they cannot see the, the face of the person and treating them and they can't be with their parents who would normally reassure them. In that context, it's Im important to try and balance everybody's safety, but also appropriate care to the child and facilitating in some capacity the parent having contact with that child, even if that is simply through a telecommunication mechanism, so a speaker uh, into the isolation room or a telephone or some form, or in some cases, placing the parent in full personal protective equipment to enter the treatment room or the isolation room occasionally to, to care for the child. But yes, it is very difficult, particularly with small children. Okay, th thank you. And I I'm guessing that you need to report the disease. H how should you do this and how urgently? So the disease should be reported as soon as it is suspected. 
and then uh, reported definitively if a positive test comes back. And it should be reported to the public health service in, in the relevant country where the patient is. It should be reported immediately because it is very important that the public health service is able to then trace any potential contacts and either isolate them if they're symptomatic or monitor them for symptoms. We do know, particularly with Ebola virus, but also with all viral hemorrhagic fevers, the earlier you get treatment, the much more likely you are to survive. And also good containment measures uh, ensure the virus doesn't continue to spread and result in uh, a full-blown epidemic. Okay, thank you. And I wonder, can you tell us the, the mainstays of treatment? At the moment, in terms of Ebola virus disease, the mainstay of treatment would be good supportive care. So especially if you're not in a specialist environment uh, for treating viral hemorrhagic fevers, uh, the best care that could be given would be intravenous fluids. If other diseases are considered such as sepsis or malaria, you may wish to treat those with intravenous antibiotics or, uh, or antimalarials. There is conflicting evidence in terms of patients who have co-infection with malaria and Ebola virus. Some evidence suggests it's protective, other suggests it's detrimental. But obviously, in the interest of the patient, very important to treat for malaria if they are shown to be malaria positive as well. Other treatments would depend on the condition of the patient. So if there is renal impairment, you may wish to balance the treatments you are already given, giving and also consider the, volume, the fluid volumes that are required and need to be given. And if there are symptoms of bleeding or if there's evidence of a coagulopathy on blood tests, then you may wish to consider early intervention with something such as fresh frozen plasma or platelet transfusions or so on. Specific treatments for Ebola virus are still in the preliminary investigational stage. There isn't good evidence for any of them, and they are treatments that ideally should be given in a setting where people are used to dealing with viral hemorrhagic fevers. Okay, thank you. And you mentioned sepsis and malaria as differentials. Are, are there other differentials? And how broadly do you tell Ebola, say, from the differentials? Yes, there, there are other differentials. As Ebola particularly presents in its early stages with very general symptoms of fever, weakness and myalgia, arthralgia, these features could be consistent with any common viral illness, as I mentioned, sepsis and malaria, uh, typhoid fever, and really many other infectious diseases. As the disease progresses, it may help you to identify a little bit more specifically that this points to one category more than another, but it isn't really until uh, you have a positive PCR that you could be definitive that someone has Ebola virus. However, features such as conjunctival injection and hemorrhagic conjunctivitis, uh, as well as bleeding, should be a very, very strong indicator. The most important area to guide you though would be the history taking and an understanding of that patient's exposure history, the country or region of the country they're living in, what their living situation is like, what possible exposures they may have had and that's more likely to pinpoint you in the early stages than the the very general symptoms they may experience. Okay thank you and I wonder what are the common pitfalls in the diagnosis and management of these diseases? I think that the main pitfall is that often uh, people don't suspect 
uh, a viral hemorrhagic fever. And therefore, it is not until the patient is quite advanced in their disease process that it might be uh, considered, at which point there has already potentially been a high level of exposure to healthcare workers uh, and close contacts resulting in the spread of the virus. In terms of the management of the virus, it's very difficult in certain cases. Uh, In severe cases, management can require extensive volumes of intravenous fluid to combat the profuse uh, vomiting and diarrhea that may be present. And sometimes, depending on the location of the patient, these facilities simply aren't available. That, as well as as having high-level isolation facilities, is not always available uh, and therefore You need to do the best you can to protect that patient, isolate them and protect the healthcare workers caring for them. Okay, thanks very much. That's very helpful and and very clear. Um, I wonder what have we missed? What other questions do you typically get asked about these diseases by doctors? One of the main um, areas that I get asked questions, uh, particularly in light of the West African Ebola virus epidemic, is what kind of ongoing problems patients may have after they survive the disease. We are seeing that Ebola survivors go on to have a range of problems from an acute uveitis that may persist for long periods and, if untreated, may result in cataract formation or blindness. We're also seeing patients who go on to have problems with persistent joint pain, chronic headaches, and in some very severe cases, we've seen patients who've developed seizure disorders, paralysis for a period slash paresis. And we've also seen that in certain patients, they go on to have virus persistence in their bodily fluids even after surviving the disease. Uh, This is particularly common in men in semen, uh, and it appears to be bodily fluids from what we would refer to as immune privilege sites, such as the testis and semen, and also the eye and intraocular fluid. Okay, thank you. And final question. I I wonder if you had one single piece of advice to give to a doctor or healthcare professional about viral hemorrhagic fevers in children. What would that be? Uh, My advice would be to always have a very high index of suspicion uh, in a patient who has uh, travelled from an endemic area uh, or if you are living in an endemic area. Even in the early stages, if testing is available, it is worth considering in the interests of protecting yourselves, uh, but also other patients and uh, relatives of, of the patient. That needs to be balanced uh, with caring for the patient and ensuring they get optimal care uh, and are not unnecessarily isolated or uh, receiving a poorer level of treatment because they're isolated. Uh, But it is important to have a high index of suspicion uh, to clamp down on uh, the disease before it becomes an epidemic and also to protect healthcare workers who are caring for the patient. Okay, thank you very much, Natalie, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better recognise, report and refer affected patients. If you want to find out more, Click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice or BMJ Learning and look at the content on viral hemorrhagic fevers. Thank you once again. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe 
and rate us on iTunes.